Welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan, as always, here with Paul Prescott. Paul, what's new? Not much. Glad to be back for another week. Glad to be here. I think we have a great show this week. Uh, I mean, it's always a good time, uh, but this week we've got Jane McAlevey, who I know Mm -hmm. is one of your faves. Um, I definitely always love talking to her. Uh, And, you know, I I was thinking the last time we had her on the show, I believe it was literally Inauguration Day. I think it was Biden's Inauguration Day. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember, you know, yeah, it seemed so basically about a year ago. Right. Right. And um, I don't know. We you know, none of us knew what was coming. Um, but here we are about a year later. Uh, we've seen a lot happen in, I guess, the world of labor, uh, if you want to yeah. call it that. Um, obviously, there's been some some bad, such as the failed uh, union drive at in uh, Bessemer, Alabama at the Amazon warehouse. Um, but we've also seen Striketober. Uh, so I'm definitely right. very excited to get Jane's thoughts on all of the above. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've, I've been curious. Ever since Striketober started, I, I've been asking myself, what is, what is Jane thinking about this? So I'm really excited <laughs> to talk to her about that yeah. today. Yeah. Um, I also want to mention she has an end of year piece coming out. Um, I, I forget which outlet it's going to be in, but I encourage all of you to go check that out um, when it when it hits. I think that'll be early next year. Um, and I also want to shout out her postmortem of the Amazon Union Drive in Alabama. It's called Blowout in Bessemer, and it's um, I like I personally read it like multiple times. Like I thought it was basically one of the best things that had been written after the failed union drive. Um, it's very clear eyed. It takes a really hard look at what happened and it spares nobody. And I actually think that kind of thing is very useful. So I don't know, Paul, did you catch that one? I did. Yeah. And that's, you know, we'll, we'll definitely ask her tonight because some people may know, you know, they're, they're going to get another shot at it in Bessemer. Yeah. Um, the NLRB ruled that it was an unfair election. Um, but, you know, I, people are excited, but it's like they got to think about what to do differently this time. So I'm really mm-hmm. curious. Here are thoughts on what she thinks, how they should approach it um, this this time around. Right, right. Um, okay, well, I kind of feel like we should just dive into yeah, our to segments today, um, because we both have, uh, I think, some some labor related issues to cover mm-hmm. uh, before we bring Jane on. And I want to give her, you know, ample time uh, to share her thoughts. Um, so something that I want to talk about is uh, Tyson Foods. Tyson, uh, as you know, is this giant meatpacking corporation. They produce around 20% of the nation's chicken, beef, and pork. And uh, recently, they announced that they would be undertaking a racial audit at the behest of investors who were worried that the company might be perpetuating systemic racism. So according to Bloomberg, Tyson is at least the third major U.S. company to say this year that it will conduct an audit after racial justice protests across the U.S. in 2020. During the most recent proxy season, investors for the first time used shareholder resolutions to call for such racial audits, leaning Wall Street firms BlackRock and Citigroup to agree. So part of the reason that Tyson investors insisted on a racial audit was that the hourly employees who had worked at the Tyson plants throughout COVID had been disproportionately Black and Latino, whereas Tyson's C-suites and boardrooms, as Bloomberg put it, remain overwhelmingly white. 
In fact, last year, the CDC found that 87% of coronavirus cases in meatpacking plants were among racial or ethnic minorities. But does that mean that the right solution here is a racial audit? Let's dive in. As you probably remember, meatpacking plants were deadly hotspots for COVID outbreaks in 2020, and Tyson was one of the very worst offenders. Here's some firsthand testimony from two Tyson workers at the height of the pandemic. It's very fast paced. It's very, very intense. Line speeds are designed to run 140 birds a minute. Everyone is standing, not even arm's length apart. There's absolutely no way that we can social distance within these plants. Meat processing plants around the country have become COVID-19 hotspots. More than 10,000 workers in poultry and meat plants have contracted the virus. At least 30 have died. We now have mask and temperature checks. Tyson even put up plastic barriers between workers. But these measures can only do so much for when we're cramped together on these lines. The reason our plants continue to be super spreaders is because Tyson forces us to process so much chicken so very quickly. The rate that they have to get these orders processed, it is physically impossible to social distance. If we slow down the lines, less workers will be needed. And by doing so, we can be able to social distance from each other and be more safe. We may be feeding America, but we're sacrificing our own selves. An investigative report last year from ProPublica further confirmed these details. A team of investigative journalists at the outlet wrote, Scores of emails and other records show that best practices to protect workers, such as slowing the processing line to accommodate social distancing, installing plexiglass barriers, and having workers wear masks, were not implemented until outbreaks began to occur. Instead, meatpacking companies spent crucial early weeks urging officials to keep their plants open. So in other words, Tyson and other meatpackers flat out denied their workers were at risk until the evidence was just too overwhelming to brush under the table. And even after more than 6,500 meatpacking workers nationwide had tested positive for COVID, Tyson ran full page paid ads in national newspapers stating that the food supply chain was, quote, broken and that meatpacking plants should therefore continue to operate. Then-President Donald Trump soon after signed an executive order mandating that slaughterhouses stay open under the Defense Production Act. And if all that wasn't enough, don't forget that this also happened at Tyson. Seven managers at the Tyson food plant in Iowa that was the site of a massive COVID-19 outbreak have now been fired. This after an investigation confirmed they placed bets on how many workers would catch coronavirus. The outbreak at the food plant in Waterloo infected more than 1,000 employees and killed at least six. Lawyers for families of four of the deceased claimed earlier this year that the plant manager had organized a betting pool for supervisors to wager on what percent percentage of plant workers would test positive for COVID-19. An investigation into the claims confirmed those allegations, leading to seven top managers at the plant losing their jobs. An attorney for the families of the victims called the supervisor's actions, quote, ghoulish, adding that they literally gambled with workers' lives. As we now know, Tyson's actions last year were disastrous for workers. A congressional report released just a few months ago found that coronavirus infections and deaths among meatpacking workers in the U.S. were nearly three times higher than previous estimates. At Tyson in particular, 29,462 employees contracted COVID and 151 people died. 
That's more than twice as many infections and deaths as any other meat producer. And lest you think that this was just a freak instance of mismanagement during an unprecedented public health crisis, keep in mind that Tyson plants were rife with labor abuses even prior to the pandemic. As Quartz noted earlier this year, the company has some of the most injury-prone jobs in the U.S. The injuries among poultry workers come from the strenuous cutting and hanging motions required to process chickens, which, particularly when done at high speeds, can lead to carpal tunnel syndrome. The fast speeds... The fast speed demanded of the workers also increases the risk of cuts and gashes. In fact, in 2016, at least one analysis of OSHA data revealed that there were 34 amputations at 10 Tyson plants within the first nine months of 2015 alone, which, if you do the math, comes out to an average of one amputation per month. The next year, an Oxfam report revealed that workers at Tyson and at other meatpacking plants were routinely denied bathroom breaks, forcing some workers to wear adult diapers on the slaughterhouse line. Given all of that, it's probably not much of a surprise that Tyson, in addition to being a demonstrably dangerous employer, also has a history of lobbying to undermine workers' comp in state after state. As reporter Michael Grable wrote, Using its economic leverage, combined with time-honored whining and dining and behind-the-scenes arm-twisting, Tyson has helped steer legislative changes through several states in the South and Midwest. It has urged officials, often successfully, to remove or appoint workers' comp judges. And the company's lawyers have crafted novel legal arguments for limiting the rights and benefits of injured workers. So thanks to these lobbying efforts by Tyson and by other big businesses, Injured workers are finding it harder and harder to access benefits and care, and employers are now paying some of the lowest rates for workers' comp insurance that they have in decades. This all brings us to the question of why Tyson investors thought to address the company's horrific labor practices, made even worse by the pandemic, with a racial audit. First of all, racial equity is a completely inadequate and frankly misleading framework for making sense of Tyson's willful and profit-driven disregard for its workers before and during the pandemic. Does anyone in their right mind really think that if Tyson's corporate board had been staffed with a few more non-white millionaires, that this would have somehow mitigated the company's efforts to juice their profits by sacrificing workers' safety? Or does anyone really think that if Tyson's slaughterhouse workers had been 60% white, 13% black, 18% Hispanic, and 5% Asian, that what happened at those plants during the pandemic would have been acceptable? Make no mistake, during the pandemic, the capitalist class committed a massive crime against essential workers. Over the same year that 269 meatpacking workers lost their lives, the profit margins of the four largest meatpackers, which of course includes Tyson, jumped 300%, and Tyson owner John H. Tyson saw his personal net worth grow by $600 million. In addition to that, according to Reuters, these companies recently also announced $1 billion in new dividends and stock buybacks on top of the more than $3 billion they paid to shareholders since the pandemic began. So investors calling for and Tyson agreeing to a racial audit as penance for their practices during the pandemic may sound progressive on a very superficial level, but will almost certainly let the company off the hook for the greed that resulted in the deaths of more than 150 employees. Let's look at the companies that have undergone these so-called racial audits in the past. 
You might remember that after two Black customers were racially profiled at a Starbucks location in 2018, Starbucks agreed to undergo a racial audit. The result? Mandatory anti-racism training for all employees. Similarly, in 2016, Airbnb agreed to their own racial audit. The result? Adding new language about non-discrimination to their user agreements. In other words, these are the types of measures that are extremely easy for companies to implement and also pose no threat whatsoever to a company's bottom line. In fact, earlier this year, Tyson itself announced that it had hired its very first chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officer and was also instituting unconscious bias training throughout the company. But the truth is that neither faux progressive technocratic fixes like racial audits or more diversity officers can even begin to curb the type of labor abuses that Tyson has been perpetuating for years. Tyson has been able to get away with their egregious treatment of workers, not because of some vague racial equity gaffes, but because of capital's decades-long relentless assault on labor. As Michael Grable and Bernice Yoon wrote in ProPublica last year, across the country, workers have been losing leverage against companies for decades. Workplace safety rules had been targeted by Reagan-era deregulation. Unionism was in a downward spiral. And in meatpacking, corporate power had grown with industry consolidation, forcing the once mighty packing house workers union to merge with less fiery labor groups that also represented other industries. Now, of course, we can't just snap our fingers and rebuild the labor movement overnight. But as we move forward from the pandemic and companies continue to exploit and abuse so-called essential workers, we have to be clear-eyed about what kinds of measures actually improve the lives of workers and which ones are just window-dressing opportunities for investors who want to feel like they're good people by advocating corporate social responsibility. Right now, at least one thing is clear. Tyson's racial audit is worse than useless. So, Paul, I, uh, I want to say this was not just a long-winded setup for you to talk about the Packing House Workers Union again. <laughs> well, it's funny it, that that came to mind. I was, I was, I'm going to get on that. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, yeah. well, I just wanted to say right. that, you know, um, I, I, you'll get into I'll let you get into this. But, you know, the fact that the Packing House <laughs> Workers Union has such a, a long and successful history of fighting for racial equality, to me, makes the Tyson racial audit like even more ridiculous. Yeah. And, you know, it had me thinking about, you know, so I, I've spoken on a show before about the United Packing House Workers of America. Um, they no longer exist in that form. They've merged. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of meatpacking workers are represented by United Food and Commercial Workers. But mm -hmm. in its heyday, I mean, probably one of the best, proudest examples we have in the labor movement of an interracial union that took on racial justice. And, you know, the main, you know, and they, that fight um, allowed for so many black workers, like meatpacking became a source of like a blue collar middle class job for black workers. And really it was the decline of that industry um, and that union and, you know, who suffers from that the most black workers. And really the, mm -hmm. the biggest explanation for that was them automating um, so many of their plants and deliberately moving out of areas that were union strongholds. Um, and again, like who are the first workers who are going to be fired in that scenario, often black workers, um, you know, so um, it's just very ironic thinking about what are the real causes of like the decline of, of meatpacking and the weakening of the union 
that was so mm-hmm. important for so many black workers. Um, and I, I don't think racial audits are gonna, gonna get at it. And <laughs> right, I mean, right. another egregious thing, I mean, I think this was just coming in recently. I mean, to its credit, the White House, I think, released a report a- around inflation, kind of highlighting how many companies are just price gouging, they're taking advantage mm-hmm. of a certain situation. And I believe the meatpacking companies are among the groups of companies um, doing that. And that's where we're seeing prices, uh, you know, being inflated specifically. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, that's another thing they're getting away with, but you know they can posture around this sort of stuff to make it seem like they're doing something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I mean, I. I did see that White House report, um, and I think it is pretty clear that you know the meat companies are jacking up prices, and let's just say that uh, that money is not going back to labor. Um, but I, you know, I when it comes to stuff like you know the so-called racial audit, I mean, anybody who is a you know watcher of the show will know that I'm always going after the diversity, equity, and inclusion industry. Um, and one reason is, you know, I think that. Um, I think that it's so easy for a company like Tyson or really any other company to point to the fact that, like, like I said, you know, 87% of the people who caught coronavirus in, uh, in these meatpacking plants were non-white. It's so easy for these companies to like point at that and be like, look, systemic racism, uh, and sound like an activist. Right. And in some senses, like, was it systemic racism? I mean, like, I'm sure you can make some sort of academic argument about why systemic racism had something to do with that. But at the same time, we actually have a clear and uh, defined cause of what put these workers at risk. It was management. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's also, I think systemic racism has reached its the the era where it becomes almost meaningless because it means different things. And it's like, if by systemic racism, you mean the fact that Black and brown people, for historical reasons, are disproportionately working class and disproportionately likely to be in these situations, then yes. But, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of right. people necessarily mean that when, when they say it. Well, Tyson management definitely doesn't. Yes, right. <laughs> but also, um, you know, by invoking systemic racism, they kind of have, they kind of like get the double whammy of sounding progressive. But then also, if the problem is systemic racism and not just your horrific labor practices, then the solution is a racial audit, right? Right. Yeah, you know, and companies have been hip to this. I mean, you know, we've had on this show Richard Hooker twice um, now, mm-hmm. president of Teams of 623 in Philadelphia, um, representing UPS workers. And some, something he always says to me is the company has gotten really good at making their managers um, look like their workers um, and seem like part of the family and like kind of beating the union almost on the cultural front. Um, but, you know, so it's like, okay, UPS managers now, it doesn't matter if they have tattoos and whatever. And, you know, it's uh, so they can play that game really easily, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I want to turn it over to you in a second, but the last thing I want to hit is just this idea of shareholder capitalism or like the, this this idea that shareholders can um, uh, prod companies or compel companies that they invest in to uh, be better, I guess, because this was kind of the driving force behind this whole Tyson racial audit. What happened was a group of investors uh, were like, hey, like we don't like what we are seeing with with regard to what happened during the pandemic, you know, it looks really bad that uh, the C-suite is all white and basically everybody who got infected and died is black or brown. Uh, we also know that there have been instances of discrimination and this this just isn't good for the company. Uh, so we, the shareholders, are calling on the company to do something about systemic racism. And what we're going to do is conduct a third party racial audit. 
I, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk, I think, during the kind of, you know, racial reckoning of the last year about how corporations uh, or, you know, how shareholders and corporations can like do better by their employees of color or fight systemic racism in some way. Uh, I hope it's clear that I'm skeptical. I mean, the shareholders at the end of the day still want to return on their investment. <laughs> right. I'm, yeah. I'm so sorry, you guys. I'm like, in case you didn't know. Right. Um, no, I, I, I mean, but, you know, this idea that the shareholders or this idea that investors can do some good, um, they're still looking for a return on their investment, aren't right. they? Yeah. And, and I'm sure the solutions are right in front of their face. I, I'd be willing to bet if you look at one of these meatpacking plants represented by the UFCW union, it, if they could videotape their last bargaining session, the, the latest contract, I, I will bet you all the money I have that the company was vociferously opposing every single health and safety measure the union was mm-hmm. proposing. And whatever health and safety measures exist, I'm sure the union had to fight tooth and nail. Um, and so th- those would be the obvious answers to what we saw during COVID and any right. worker health and safety issue. But of course, why, why do that? You know, um, why do that when you can do a racial audit? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love it. Um, All right. Well, um, you have a uh, slightly more positive news, so take it away. Yeah. You know, continuing the good cop, bad cop regime here. Always. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about, you know, some, some optimism I have at the state level. Um, but first, you know, about the federal level. And I think there are many reasons that we should be horrified about the state of Biden's uh, build back better agenda. The fact that it has become so whittled down and stalled in Congress casts some serious doubts as to whether we can stave off the right in the midterms, let it alone in the 2024 presidential election. But it's also horrifying if you care about climate change. Even before compromises were made, the Build Back Better agenda had a lot of limitations in terms of how far it was willing to go towards a transition to renewable energy. But now, many of the more ambitious proposals on climate change have been cut from the bill. And pretty much weekly now, we're seeing or experiencing big signs that the climate is changing and we need to do something really fast. The situation looks really bleak at the federal level. But what's been largely unnoticed is that there have been great strides made in recent years to enact ambitious Green New Deal policies at the state level, most notably in Maine, Connecticut, Illinois, and New York. And what makes these initiatives so important is that they actually have strong support and buy-in from labor unions, including unions that represent workers in the fossil fuel industry. Slowly but surely, the labor and environmental movement are learning to come together and hammer out ambitious but realistic plans to move towards a renewable energy future. The left needs to take lessons from these experiences and seize the political opportunities that exist at the state level. These states have offered a much more promising model of how climate activists engage with the labor movement. Far too often, the climate movement pays lip service to making the Green New Deal pro-worker, but doesn't put in the legwork to get true buy-in from labor. In these places where labor has been supportive of the Green New Deal, the key was that labor was included and involved in the conversation from the very beginning and not as an afterthought. In 2019, uh, Maine's AFL-CEO was behind a state-level climate bill that called for 80% renewable electricity by 2040, solar power for public schools, the creation of a task force to study economic and job growth, and the commission to facilitate a just transition to a low-carbon economy. The bill was the brainchild of a young state lawmaker named Chloe Maxson, and in these times covered the different ways she went about building the coalition, saying, Maxim, by contrast, sought to bring allies into her coalition prior to going public with the legislation. 
and main labor environmental groups did not have a deep history of working together before. I've been an organizer for a long time, and to build power and to really create something inclusive, I knew it had to be inclusive from the very beginning, she told in these times. The traditional strategies that we've used around climate and climate policy just have not really gotten us very far. You do not have to be an expert on labor unions in order to make a respectful attempt to include them in the process of formulating ambitious legislation. Matt Schlebaum, the executive director of the main AFL-CIO, spoke about how environmental organizations can work with labor. Schlebaum said if he were to give advice to environmental leaders about how to organize effectively with labor, he'd encourage them to make deliberate efforts to understand unions and engage them in a good faith process. And I think just the basic organizing one-on-one of showing up for each other, he said, there's a lot of strikes and picket lines these days, but do environmental organizations show up at teacher strikes and grocery worker strikes? Our starting point has to be an understanding of why merely saying just transition over and over isn't good enough. We need to understand why a history of bad experiences has made many labor unions skeptical of promises to retrain for workers for renewable industries, or that we can even create unionized renewable industries. Take a listen to the main AFL-CIO head, Matt Sobom. When you look at the experience of a trade adjustment assistance program and its colossal inadequacy for what has happened in the kind of economic restructuring of the last 30 years, people are skeptical for good reasons about whether this will pan out in the way that we would like it to. And to your point, Lara, the jobs that have been created in solar installation or energy efficiency have largely been low road jobs without career paths, without sufficient training. Um, so this is this is the, the fundamental challenge here. I believe Alex's numbers. I think there is a massive, massive, massive opportunity So climate activists in Maine were successful because they took these concerns seriously and made it clear to labor that they would be central in any clean energy proposals. More recently, the Illinois legislature passed a landmark climate jobs bill that could serve as a model for the rest of the nation. This bill was the initiative of Climate Job Illinois, a coalition of environmental groups and labor unions, including the Illinois AFL-CIO and Chicago Federation of Labor. The bill puts the state on the path to achieve carbon-free power by 2045, shut down all fossil fuel plants by 2045, and 100% clean energy by 2050. It also preserved a few nuclear power plants that not only provided high-paying union jobs, but were a crucial component of the non-carbon-emitting energy in the state. Project labor agreements will be required on all utility-scale wind and solar projects. These agreements ensure union labor will be used and fair contracts enforced. For other non-residential clean energy projects, workers will still need to be paid the prevailing wage even if they aren't in a union, and the employers need to remain neutral in the face of any unionization drives. This is a significant measure to rein in an industry that has already developed a reputation for bad working conditions and being anti-union. As one Illinois labor leader described, the, the renewable industry, particularly in the solar industry, in Illinois has promoted the idea that investment in green jobs will create good jobs in Illinois. While experience has shown that, though there are jobs being created through projects like solar farms, what we have seen here to date has been workers coming in from out of state, primarily, who are paid little more than minimum wage, said Sean Stott, who's the director of government affairs for the Midwest region of the Laborers International Union. This legislation will correct that, and it will require developers and contractors that install solar projects and other renewables to pay a good wage, 
a wage that workers can sustain their families on, that they can build a career on. The just transition formulated in this bill in Illinois is serious and detailed. The Energy News Network reported that the Climate Union Jobs Bill includes a just transition plan requiring advance notice of coal plant closures and support for displaced workers, including 24 months of health insurance available at the previous cost and benefit level, full tuition scholarships for trade schools and higher education, and employment assistance. Empowerment zones created by the bill would incentivize investment in areas with closing coal plants. That is a just transition program that actually takes into account the real-life concerns workers and their unions would have about moving off of fossil fuels. The legislation also includes measures related to racial justice. Apprenticeship programs will be expanded to include many more Black and Latino applicants, and clean energy companies will be required to report their progress on diversity hiring. And drawing inspiration from Jamal Bowman's Green New Deal for Public Schools legislation, the Illinois bill, bill also has a program to install solar panels on public schools in the state. There are, these are just some of the highlights. And Illinois in all has shown that it's possible to be ambitious about fighting climate change in a way that creates good union jobs at the same time. Previously, about a year ago, we had on our show Lara Skinner, who spoke about the success they've had in New York in getting labor on board with green jobs. And in June, SB 999 passed in Connecticut with labor support because the bill ensures project labor agreements for renewable energy products. In each example, activists had success because they truly respected the knowledge and skills possessed by those who actually work in the energy industry. It's difficult and frankly arrogant to imagine how we make such a huge transformation in our energy system without the buy-in from those that actually work in it. Lee Phillips, in his excellent article for the Breakthrough Institute, put it best, saying, For labor, the main issue is that few Green New Deal promoters thought to formally talk to workers, the people most directly affected by the legislation, before drafting it. Such an oversight is astounding. The AFL-CIO Energy Committee brings together almost all the unions that work in the energy sector, both fossil and clean, but also the United Mine Workers and the formidable United Steelworkers. There's perhaps no greater collective body of tacit and formal knowledge about energy and the machines and processes it involves than what sits in the heads of members of these North American industrial unions. We need to do better as a movement. But the experiences in Illinois, Maine, Connecticut, and New York show that we actually are starting to do better. And dysfunction at the federal level does not mean that all we can do is despair and is not an excuse for inaction. State governments possess a lot of revenue to work with, and things they do can serve as models that eventually filter up to the federal level. Electoral campaigns for the left are more manageable at the state level, and pro-union Green New Deal legislation should be a core part of the platform of any left candidate. The common phrase about organizing conversation is that you should listen 80% of the time and talk 20% of the time. We need to listen to our union members in the energy sector and include them from the very beginning in any conversation about a renewable energy future. So, Jen, what do you think? You know, Paul, that is good news <laughs> after <laughs> all of the bad news <laughs> that we have covered basically on 
the vast majority of our shows. Um, I, I do want to say that uh, the reason why these examples are so heartening in particular is because I, I feel like on the left, we hear this line all the time that jobs versus the environment is a false dichotomy, right? Like I'm sure you've heard it multiple times. Like everybody says it over and over, but you know, lately I think as the Green New Deal project has started to become more popular and we've seen some of these conflicts between, you know, climate activists and labor starting to sharpen a little more. Like one question I have is, is it a false dichotomy? Like I want it to be, you know, like I, or, and, and it should be. Um, and I think that these projects that you've highlighted show that it is. Uh, but as you were saying, I think that it's, it's really going to take a lot of work to um, not just say that we can do a just transition, but to actually show how that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, I think, is it a false dichotomy? It's like, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it depends, <laughs> depends how you do it. You know I mean? But again, we, we've already lived through examples of like as the main AFL-CIO guy, who of course is actually extremely pro, you know, action on climate change as they proved in Maine. But he said, we've yeah. already lived through experiences where it is a real dichotomy um, mm -hmm. that has hurt workers. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think like part of the problem sometimes is maybe just assuming we can't make assumptions like no one can read our mind. I mean, mm -hmm. you might be thinking that you want to do something in a pro-worker way. But again, if, if you're not really reaching out to the relevant people and again, also it's like actually a real, and this is something Lee Phillips goes into more detail in his article. Like we should be a little bit humble on the science and the engineering. It's like, I have no goddamn idea how the hell we move uh, off fossil fuels, you know, like in mm -hmm. reality, in, in mm -hmm. an actual scientific and engineering sense. I mean, but you know, the workers that work in the energy sector understand how this works and they might understand what is more realistic than other things. Um, so, you know, I think we yeah. should have humility about that and draw on the expertise of people that actually would know how that kind of transition would work and would be the people implementing it. Yeah, I just want to second that um, that Lee Phillips article is really great. I encourage everybody to check it out. That was published by the Breakthrough Institute. Um, and that uh, point in particular in his piece where he basically points out that, um, you know, energy sector unions have not just been thinking about just transition and about, uh, you know, renewable and clean energy options for a while. They actually know better than anyone, as you said, how to do it, how to actually implement it. And they've been working on their own plans. And so, you know, as you said, it is in some senses, like, very weird and arrogant uh, to kind of come in and be like, well, we have a good idea. Like, do, do you want in on this? You know? Right. Yeah. But again, I mean, I'm heartened by some of these examples and especially right. the Illinois bill, because again, it, it's actually extremely ambitious and yet they have these major building trades unions and others on board. And I also like how it combines, you know, yes, there's fossil fuel workers and their unions on board, but also teachers unions because of the mm -hmm. stuff around, you know, solarizing public school buildings, retrofitting them. Um, so, you know, they, I see a lot of opportunity here if we play our mm -hmm. cards right. And I'm mm -hmm. hopefully more and more people are learning and we can take, you know, these models and try to apply them in our own states. I, I have uh, I have a last question for you, and it, it might be it might be a little spicy. I'm not sure. But mm. the question is, what do you think of the phrase Green New Deal or like what do you think of uh, calling the project of Green 
green jobs uh, or, or lumping the project of green jobs under this umbrella of the Green New Deal. Because I almost feel like at this point, it, it kind of has a lot of baggage, right? And like some of it is totally unwarranted. Um, but again, when when we look at, uh, you know, what Lee Phillips and others have pointed out that the architects of the Green New Deal, like just did not include labor from the beginning. And I think that really kind of um, sort of set up a like, fraught dynamic that we see play out, you know, over and over again. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have hesitations. I'm not ready to like throw it, throw it out completely, but I also want to point out, and I think I have brought this up on the show before that, like lots of people just don't know what the green new deal is. Um, and it, it actually is a kind of confusing thing to understand because it's not really a piece of legislation. It's a resolution. It's also non-binding. Um, you know, I, as I think, we've made pretty clear, like, I like everything that's covered under the Green New Deal. Um, and I think in a way, it is a useful framework, or a useful umbrella term for a variety of different projects. Um, but I don't know, what do you think, Paul? Has it been poisoned? Yeah, it's tough. Because, you know, when the slogan first came out, I mean, I really liked it, because it's like, yeah, you know, draw on the history of the New Deal. I think enough people kind of know something about that. And yeah, Green New Deal. Um but yeah, I mean, it's tough because I think it has been kind of like, you know, poison again, in many ways unfairly, but, you know, it has right. been. Um, but I think, again, I think the most importantly, again, if you actually are doing the work to re reaching out to unions, like at the end of the day, you'll figure out what to call it, you know, and <laughs> right. people will right, be okay right. with it because, you know, yeah. some of these bills, I forget which one, but I think the one in Maine was called something like a Green New Deal. But again, I, I think if you've built a relationship, they won't care about the word as much as the, right. the substance um yeah so well um on the topic of building relationships with with labor um i think right. we should uh cut to our guest yeah um so we are really excited to have um jane McAlevey back on the show jane is a labor organizer senior senior policy fellow at the university of california in berkeley's labor center the author of many great books i can attest to because i read them raising expectations <laughs> and raising hell nor ch no shortcuts and a collective bargain. Um, so welcome, Jane, and thank you so much for being with us tonight. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Good to see you both. Yeah, and so we'll get right into it. Um, so one thing I've been dying to ask you since it started was, um, you know, we've been living through Striketober and now, now Striketember, um, this this uh, strike wave um, that I think you, you kind of called it at some, I think you were on some show I saw you, you I think you did kind of predict this. So my question for you is really, you know, how are you thinking about what we've been seeing in these last few months? Like, what do you think explains this militancy? Do you think overall these have been successful strikes? Um, and do you see signs that this could be maybe the beginning of like a protracted period of labor unrest? unrest or do you see this as more of a short term thing? Oh, my God. So many questions. I had to write them all down. It was so exciting. No, it's okay. It's good. Um, we like lots of questions all at once. Um, so, uh, yes, I definitely uh, have spent a lot of time and several books trying to articulate, certainly the last, the, the recent one, Collective Bargain, and then um, No Shortcuts, trying to articulate that we are going to hit a place where workers actually start saying enough of this crap, you know what I mean, already. Um, and, and so I think we are seeing that. On the other hand, I thought you were going to say that you heard me say in interviews um, something I was also saying more recently, which is, you know, uh, first of all, I don't like the word wave. That's a 
personal thing. Um, and I'm going to keep saying that. I'm not sure that this is really a strike wave yet. I think it is. I mean, there are several things happening and we could really miss the moment. And that's why it's actually, it's actually great to be here to talk to you uh, for a little while today. I mean, we're in, we're in a sort of tighter labor market, right? So the conditions are sort of ripe uh, for us to take advantage of them. The question is, will we? Like, will we? I mean, I think it's a really fair question at this point because there have been other moments in time in history when we have had a tight labor market like today, tight labor market meaning, you know, unemployment is officially down, uh, workers are quitting in droves, and and there's a lot of there's a lot of talk out there that that gives workers more power. Well, it does, but so far, and we'll come back to October, November, December, and I hope something better in 2022. Um, but I think that there, I think most of what we've seen so far is the manifestation of like the 50 year cultural war called neoliberalism that has reconditioned like over decades, people to think and act individually versus collectively, right? That's why I call the new book a collective bargain. Like I'm trying to constantly get the word collective bargaining, collective back in um, our discussion. So uh, the big quit, the great resignation, 12 to 14 million Americans quitting their job just since April, record high in July, then we broke the record again uh, in August, then we broke the record again in September. So the narrative was like the big quit, the great resignation, all the focus was on that. And then once 10,000 workers at John Deere uh, walked off the job and challenged both their national union and what their national union was recommending that they accept and challenged the John Deere Corporation in the middle of a raging pandemic, that that one act by 10,000 mighty workers in a supermajority strike really shifted the narrative right away. Now, imagine what would have happened had IATSE and 60,000 workers in the stagehand union actually gone on strike. Imagine what would have happened had the Kaiser strike actually played out with an additional 50,000. These were the these were the sort of the strike threats that were being discussed that were leading to sort of the striketober narrative shift in at least in the media. Um, and I'm going to still argue two things. One, when I when I look back at the whole year, which, you know, it's that time of year when we're all looking at what happened this year. When I look back at the whole year, I still think the massive challenge for organizers is how to, how to channel this individual, like, I quit. You know, there even there's even a, several stories recently highlighting that workers are like, going on to Instagram and whatever social media they use before they walk in their boss's office and quit and like saying it on Instagram and like filming themselves quitting. So there's this like individual militancy and individual anger, but we got to see way more of the kind of collective action that John Deere workers took or that Kellogg and many other workers have been taking this year before we're going to get to the place where we're creating a kind of crisis that's going to force the mansions, the cinemas, and frankly, we know there's a bunch of Democrats hiding behind them, frankly, right? But those two are like, I call them the public face of resistance to all the things. Um, there are definitely a bunch of moderate Democrats who are like, don't ever back down. You know that crap is happening. That's actually how it works. So we got two of them who have the balls to be the front, you know, of resistance to like actual fundamental structural change. Um, and they're not going to change their mind unless and until more workers take the action that the John Deere workers took, unless more workers actually say, yeah, no, <laughs> we're walking off the job in a supermajority strike and we ain't going back 
until our demands are met. That, that magnified many times over is the kind of power that's going to be desperately required in 2022 if we stand any damn chance of not sinking into uh, Trumpism this time next year. So I, I want to ask you about another sort of recent news item, which, uh, you know, happened last week. It's, of course, the Buffalo Starbucks Union. Um, now, uh, the reason why I wanted to ask you about this in particular is because obviously, on one hand, when any workplace, you know, anywhere unionizes, it's a great day, right? Um, but I, I also noticed that um, for this particular instance, there was basically a wave, well, sorry to use that word, but like a wave of a wave of media mainstream media coverage that sort of characterized this uh shop unionizing as historic landmark uh first of its kind and obviously you know again it is the first starbucks location to be unionized but i want to put it into context a little bit because actually you know paul and i were talking off the show about um what this unionization really means i mean we were saying you know um uh, just just looking at the media coverage, something like the Teamsters election, which also happened recently, did did not get even a fraction of the coverage uh, that the Starbucks unionization did, but will probably end up affecting way more people. Right. Um, so I suppose the question for you is um, perhaps it's kind of a media question, but I, I guess the question is, do you think that the media coverage of this Starbucks unionization uh, was outsized in any way or warranted? Um, and then the follow-up is, what should we actually make of the union process, of the unionization of this Starbucks? Yeah, really good questions. By the way, the whole discussion you were having was really good. Um, before I jumped in, um, I was thinking, oh my God, like you're talking about the Laura Skinner interview and the discussion about the Green New Deal yeah, and how the work actually gets done. And then also about the packing house workers, both of which are in a chapter in a collective bargain, right? The chapter where I take on myths about the labor movement. So I was like, oh, we are right in the right discussion here. Why I always like to see all of you. Um, so what does it mean? Uh, was it overhyped? You know, having having articulated some things that were overhyped uh, mm -hmm. in the media, and I'm sticking by it this year. Um, I Whether it was overhyped or not, I you know, probably, but let's think about it. a few reasons why. Some of the same ones as Bessemer and elsewhere, which is, you know, Howard Schultz ran, was, was a presidential candidate, right? So he isn't like the average CEO, like the dude was actually considering himself because he's so crazily arrogant, like actually considered himself someone who could run for president of the United States. That's like, oh my God, you know, pull anyone out and run them if he can run. But anyway, so, you know, he's got a particular... Like he's an ideological warrior. So I think, you know, as is Amazon, obviously, right? They're both ideological warriors in a class war against workers and just for the super rich. So, you know, was it overhyped? Yeah, probably. Um, it's a simple story. It's like the media comment is, since you raised the word media here, the media commentary, I think, is we have this, you know, persistent problem for probably ever, I can just say in my lifetime, which is that most reporters, have never been a member of sort of like, they've never worked um, outside of the work that they're doing, uh, meaning that there's usually a very big class and probably race and gender, right? But there's definitely a big class gap between reporters who make the decision about the headlines versus um, their experience uh, on this planet before they became reporters. So that's one challenge. 
Um, so they, they cannot relate to Starbucks because they go shop there and they pick up their latte there, right? So it's like they're reaching for something that they relate to, which is a coffee shop. And then I do think the fact that Schultz is sort of a big national figure makes him deserving of more attention. Now, the question is, what do I really think about it? I mean, I'd like to say I agree with you that the Teamster election is potentially a much more significant. And as a bridge or a segue between that and a, something that relates to the Starbucks question, I'm not going to leave it yet. But what also happened last week was 17,000 academic researchers at the University of California system, uh, 17,000 versus like 25 in a coffee shop in Elmwood or something, you know, threatened to strike to demand recognition and won their union in what I call the old fashioned way, which was they were prepared to do a supermajority super strike and walk off the job. So we got 17,000 academic workers in the University of California last week, and we got like 25, or I'm not looking at the actual number, I remember it, but, you know, literally 30, 25 people in a store in Starbucks. Uh, I'm interested in the Teamsters using the method that the United Auto Workers were using with the academic student researchers in California to strike for recognition and get a 17,000 boom, right? So which is more valuable? I mean, it's interesting to compare them because they were within days of each other last week. Mm -hmm. And I think they do both matter, but I'm actually much more interested in the internal change at the the United Auto Workers, right? There was also an internal Mm -hmm. democracy vote there, different then, but similar energy to what was happening in the Teamsters. The question is, can we actually turn that into something real? That's just because we change a leader. I mean, if we haven't learned just because we change a leader, we don't change anything. Uh, we're kidding ourselves for one. So wh- what are the internal structures that are going to keep any new leadership accountable to sort of the promises, whether it's Biden or the slate that one of the Teamsters or the potential UAW's future, right? So th- we still need structures to force change, whether it's in our unions or in our broader society. So going back to the Starbucks thing really quickly, I mean, they're going to have a hell of a time getting a contract. Um I mean, I have a lot of thoughts for them. Uh, I don't want to do a whole show on it, but about how they might win one, but um, strategically. But you know, what what is in the what is in Schultz's interest? What is in the Starbucks CEO and president and the corporation's interest in giving those workers a first contract? Nothing. They're going to sit on them. They're going to punish them. I mean, I've been in scenarios where the boss realizes, oh my God, this is a Pandora's box to more unionization if we let these worker if we let these workers you know, have a good contract or have any standard better than anyone else in the company, it's going to represent a huge threat. My guess is they would love to close the Starbucks. My guess is they haven't done it, that this is where you see the value of having the Biden administration uh, because we have to stretch ourselves to talk about where we see the advantages. But one advantage is the National Relations Board. Certainly a decision to close that Starbucks, which is what most ruthless employers will do, right? With one small shop, just close it. Mm-hmm. That they're going to have a hard time doing. I'm not predict they could still do it, but it may happen. I have no idea. I'm not looking closely at this. It could still happen. But having Biden may prevent them from doing that, right? And having a labor board that's actually going to take action against an employer for a, an obviously egregious behavior. The easier thing for that boss to do is never give them a contract, run a decertification campaign 12 months from now, or never give them a contract. And just never give them one or offer them a contract that, you know, has subpar. That's worse than everyone else. I've literally had bosses do that, like put something across the table to teach a lesson to workers that was worse than the human resource policies in the rest of the company. So all of those, those are the more likely scenario for what those Starbucks workers face. The question is, how the hell are they going to win a great contract? That's why I'm more interested in 17,000 workers at the University of California system who, you know, 
won a union last week by threatening to strike. Because if you're ready to threaten to strike and if there are more than 25 or 30 of you, uh, then you got a hell of a chance to pull off a win. And we got to have win. Like people need to, we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. people got to see workers winning fundamental change in their lives in order to decide to take the rest to do what they just did, right? So that's going to be the challenge in the Starbucks at work. I think it's important, but it's not, it's very important, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's the issue you raised, I think is, are more fundamental to what we need to see on scale. And, you know, with this heightened strike activity, um, there, there are more opportunities for whether it's progressive individuals or leftist organizations like DSA to do strike support. Um, so can you talk about, I mean, first, why strike support very important to do? And also, you know, how should people go about doing this? I imagine many of our listeners are people who are not in unions, but are supportive of them, at least in the abstract. So how should people think about how would you start supporting strikes in, in concrete ways? Ooh, uh, so many, um, so many. I mean, the first is that, uh, you know, uh, sadly, sadly, this won't be true at the UAW and it won't be true at the Teamsters. Um, but many other workers who are on strike, many of the workers who are on strike right now, actually, a lot of the small strikes don't have a strike fund, aren't prepared sort of financially to, to deal with it. So the central first thing that everyone can do is contribute, like literally contribute to the strike fund. But that, so that's one. And that's a fairly easy one. The other ones, though, that I like to talk about are shifting the narrative quickly and surrounding the workers with support. Right. So that's calling up the local pre- where we have local press. <laughs> we still do. It, it does actually still matter. So reaching out to local newspapers, if you live in an area with a strike, reaching out, for, first of all, going to the picket line. Actually, I should just back up and say the very first thing is. You got to ask the workers what they need, right? Like they're going to know whether it's the Green New Deal and how we transition or how to eradicate racism uh, besides a stupid audit that you were describing earlier versus like winning a contract that eradicates racism in the contract, right? So we got to start by talking to the workers who are on strike. A big mistake is that a lot of people don't do that. And then they start doing things like taking to social media and calling for boycotts, which is actually not what the workers want uh, or whatever the example is. So start by getting down at the picket line and supporting them if you're not in the union. Secondly, ask them what they need. Then bounce off of their articulation of the things that they need, which are going to include money, but really, frankly, going to other power players in the broader community. If, if you're in their community, right, you have a lot of chances of things you can do. Reaching out to the media, demanding that people support them, standing with them, bringing down you know huge delegations of your friends and comrades and allies to the picket line, setting up a parallel picket shift schedule that you can do yourselves, right? There's a just a slew of ways that the rest of us can support other people's strikes. And it's frankly kind of urgent at this point. So it isn't just money. It's how do we actively show serious support for workers when they're on strike. It matters to them, like having been there, it matters to workers to feel like there are people actually standing with them on those ridiculously cold nights. We see all these lonely pictures of these workers standing on these picket lines, right, where they're actually trying to hold the line right now. And then, frankly, it gets lonely and intense. The strike is, like, incredibly exciting when you're voting, incredibly exciting when you walk off, and it gets lonely pretty quickly unless there are people there supporting you. So that's really important. If you're far away, support the strike fund, write to the national media, uh, demand, uh, you know, really good coverage by the national media. That That's some of the basic stuff that people can do. And we got to have way, like way, 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 way more um, strikes uh, coming up in the 
2022, or we're just about to march straight into Trumpism again. Um, and so, you know, speaking of the media, how they're covering labor, there's a lot of buzz around. They're going to get a second shot at organizing at, at Bessemer. Um, and so, you know, you wrote an article at the time of the first vote, um, your thoughts on that. So, you know, how do you think the union needs to approach um, this fight differently this time around? Well, let's start by saying if they're just thinking about that right now, we're going to lose. So um, hopefully they've been thinking about that for a really long time. Um, and I believe that they have been. I hope they have been. Um, and frankly, the whole reason I wrote the story was, as I predicted, it's very important if you read the end of the story, like in the last three paragraphs, I, I say, back in March, I said, they are in all likelihood going to win. Uh, their fight to have a second election. So I articulate that. No surprise. No surprise to me at all. Uh, the, the, the violations were totally egregious. That, that wasn't the point. The point is, how do you actually organize when you have an A-level union busting campaign, which those of us who've been doing the work for a long time know has to be met with what we call an A-level organizing campaign, right? If you've got an A-level boss fight, you need an A-level organizing strategy. If you've got a B-level boss fight, you know, or a C-level one, boss is asleep at the switch, shows up late, doesn't hire a good union buster. You got, you got different, you got different ways that you have to like attenuate how much power has to be brought to bear to the fight. You know, going into an Amazon fight or Starbucks, that's why the Starbucks thing was interesting. Uh, you know, it's going to be an A-level boss fight, meaning they're going to intimidate, terrorize, scare, fire, fill in the blank, change their schedules. I mean, I mean, every one of these things done to workers and campaigns, which is part of what I said in the article, right? Like none of this crap is new. And that was my complaint about the media narrative, like as if these were new tactics, putting the post box, do whatever. This is as old as capitalism. Like they do anything, right? When they're trying to stop a unionization drive. So the first thing is they have had to have been ongoing organizing to stand a chance at a second election. Uh, this entire time. Um, I hope they have been. Um, and I can say that some people involved in the campaign, I will leave all their names out for fear that it, you know, gets them in trouble, uh, reached out to me multiple times to say, to thank me for writing the article, to say that they believed it would actually help reset the campaign internally. So there was, you know, this was not, as I have said several times, uh, you know, I was talking to people who were involved in that campaign. Um, and there was a lot of frustration for how it was being run. So their chances of winning, you know, are, I think, steep right now. It's great that there's a labor board in place that will be, you know, diligent. Um, but when I wrote in No Shortcuts about going back to meatpacking, when I wrote in No Shortcuts about the Smithfield Drive, part of what was so important so Smithfield, sorry, for people who don't know, Smithfield was a massive election that happened in the South, the biggest Southern election in decades at the time, at a you know, at the world's largest pork producer, just summed up quickly. And uh, they had to go back at the apple three times. I actually argue, same union, different moment, but I argue, or same national union anyway, I argued that when I analyzed the campaign, that it wasn't just because labor law was broken. That wasn't the only reason they lost the first election or the second election. They had bad strategy, right? I'm focused on strategy. I'm an organizer. Uh, so, which is the same thing I was focused on in the Amazon campaign. Like if you're taking a run at a big target, damn it, don't blow it. You know, we should work really hard to win. So at Smithfield, what changed the outcome in the end was that there was actually 
an agreement in place, like forged through worker struggle that happened outside of the election time. There was huge community support bill, huge. I'm not talking about, sorry, DSA posters in Bessemer saying support the union. I saw them. I looked at everyone who was supporting the campaign. That ain't going to do it last I looked in the South. So I'd like a moment when it does, but right now I'm not going to agree that it does. So in Smithfield, they built a giant infrastructure in the community. It's where Reverend Barber comes from, like who we now know as the Poor People's Campaign, right? Like no one knew Reverend Barber's name back then, uh, except the workers in Smithfield, because he had just become elected the head of the state NAACP, which is an organization that if they put out a poster in North Carolina, does actually matter to people, right? So um, they built a huge infrastructure. Then they had a ton of struggle. They picked issues, intermediate issues. So if this hasn't been happening in Bessemer, then I'm not going to feel, I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't be putting a lot of money if the following things haven't been happening. If they haven't continued to dig really deeply on issues in the factory, in the workplace, and if they haven't been building intermediate small fights and had workers testing their power and winning them since last March, that's not going to be a great sign about what's going to happen whenever the rerun happens. At Smithfield, a new organizing team came in who actually had a vision that said, hey, workers are really smart. We got to do some really aggressive work here. We got to have skirmishes on the shop floor. Workers have to build their confidence to believe they can overcome at that place, the largest pork producer in the entire world. And at this place, the damn largest employer in the United States, right? And go up against the richest man in the world. So worker, what, what organizing is about is helping workers develop their confidence and their self-confidence as they're going. So that has to have been happening. If there's not evidence that there's been like shop floor fights happening, that's going to be problematic. There were at Smithfield. They picked one over Martin Luther King Day becoming a holiday. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to do my book off the top of my head. So there were like a series of issues that they began to pick. They began to poke at the issues. Safety and health violations, right? Always good. There's mm-hmm. endless ones. I mean, we're, we're doing this show talking about Amazon who just killed six workers, right? Because yeah. it's too important to get production going when there was a tornado warning, right? And not just them, the damn candle factory and everyone else. But like, you know, God, we're talking about records that workers had to stay at work when there were clear and present tornado warnings that a massive storm was coming. It wasn't a surprise. They just chose to keep workers working. It's like, I honestly, I felt like, you know, we're not that far from the triangle worst uh, uh, shirtwaist factory, right? It's like workers being like told you have to come to work, even though there's a tornado warning in a tornado alley in this country. Okay. I digress, but the outrage is ridiculous. So, so there's, there's a whole lot, of serious organizing that I hope has continued to happen and that's going to need to happen for them to be able to have the workers feel that they can overcome a boss that was powerful enough, quite frankly, because it's a hegemonic issue, that they could even make the post office set up a post box right in front of their workplace. I mean, that's an act of serious power. And if people like the organizers, which they did in Bessemer, were walking around telling people, don't worry, you know, um, you'll, you, there won't be a post box or, you know, you'll have a way to vote directly and the boss won't know. And then a post box shows up. That's a damning moment in a campaign because you've delegitimized the sort of the lead theory of the campaign. And, and a lot of these things were happening there. So I think it's going to be a tough campaign, honestly, at this point. That's part of why I wrote we should not burn turf, by which I mean we should not treat any campaign as uh, if it's okay to lose it because it has real ramifications. 
So Jane, as always, uh, we would love to ask you questions all night, uh, but I know that we're running up on our time with you. Uh, so I just want to close out by asking you, you know, once we kind of cut through the media buzz and like everything that's overhyped, um, what are some campaigns or some victories that happened over the last year that you think were underreported that we should know more about? Um, obviously, you just talked about the 17,000 academic workers. Um, I know you must have other stories uh, tucked away. Um, and then um, building off of that, um, what should we pay? What should we be paying attention to in the next year? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you raised a couple of the really good ones, which is that it'd be really good if the media or anyone, you know, was paying more attention to the internal democracy, sort of small D democracy movements inside of some of our major unions, because there's a relationship, although, you know, the media is used to just calling those unions corrupt. So for them to have to acknowledge that workers are actually, um, you know, holding, holding their national organizations accountable to a different kind of a vision would probably be a challenge for a lot of uh, reporters right now, sadly. Um, so, but that's big. The academic researchers one is big. I mean, there's, oh, geez, May, the 1199 New England victory, where in the nursing homes, beleaguered nursing homes, I mean, I think one of the most exciting wins was back in May, where they won, there was a statewide strike threat that was credible, okay, credible versus not credible, keywords, right? There's a lot of not credible strike threats, I would argue that the IATSE strike threat was not a credible strike threat, which is why we didn't see a strike. But in 1199 back in May, 1199 New England back in May, there was an extraordinary contract settlement where the workers, after dealing with the pandemic for a year in the nursing home industry, where people were literally dying, right, both the residents and the workers, um, they said, yeah, no, we're, we're, not, we're going for a $20 minimum and that's it. They single-handedly won the best standard again in the United States of America by saying, 15 isn't enough. 20 is going to be the minimum in every nursing home contract in the state. We're going to win it in these master contract fights. And we're going to bring every cook and dietary worker up to at least 18, if not 20, and get them all in the health and welfare fund and a damn pension. So this was like an extraordinary victory. And I don't think there was a single national headline about it. So you're right. Jen. We could go through like a lot of stories that deserved a lot of coverage. Like how did this one union in this one state going up against the same national for-profit employers that a bunch of other unions, sometimes even in the same national union go up against and can't produce anything. Why? Because they're not actually really organizing and they're not capable of a supermajority strike threat that the bosses know is real. So there's that. And then, Oh my God. And then what else is, well, what's exciting about 2022? What do we need to do in 2022? Is that the second question you asked me? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm like, so many exciting things we have to do. Um, what we have to do, which I just finished writing about, uh, and it'll be published in about a week, but is a story looking at um, where we have contracts expiring in 2022, where we have key political races happening in 2022, the overlay between them, and how can we start, yeah, let's close on this one. How can we start to get, uh, let's say, the better parts of the Democratic administration, or at least the unions connected to moving things within it, to understand that Biden's behavior towards workers on strike, and the whole administration's behavior, but starting with the president, that He's, he's got to approach workers on strike 
as if and we have to approach a demand about what the administration does with workers on strike, right? That's key. Nothing happens without us demanding it and trying to make it happen. That we have to understand the administration's overt and open behavior towards workers on strike, as I'm arguing, more important than the damn agency appointments that we're getting and the rulemaking that's happening behind the scenes. Essentially, the national labor movement continues to play a sort of behind the scenes insider baseball. You know, we remove this one, we remove that one. We've got this one at wage an hour. We've got this one over here. We've got this commission looking at, you know, how to, you know, a White House commission looking at how to support organizing. And what we don't have is any visible expression where workers actually get to experience the political education of who the hell is standing up with them and for them out in public. So I actually think the idea that picket lines are equally or more important to agency heads and appointments and sort of, again, insider baseball rulemaking is like a central demand that we have to make as a movement heading into 2022. We need way more picket lines and we need a very different approach to them from this administration or uh, we are going to face a brutal, brutal discussion a year from now when the House and the Senate are lost, frankly, um, setting up, you know, 2024 uh, and the possibility of a return to ongoing Trumpism, whether it's Trump or a Trumper. Um, and I, I find I find that as the alternative to like get bold and take some damn risk, national unions like that's what's got to happen. It isn't just that the planet's on fire and burning down. It's that January 6th, like when I think about 2022, the other date I think about is January 6th, right? Like how the hell we're like watching a slow motion car crash happening with democracy. We, we see it coming and there's clear and present strategies for how to peel a bunch of people back to our side and give them faith that showing up and doing something like voting for the Democrats versus Trumpers matters. And that that would have been so different if Biden had showed up in Iowa. Let me just mention swing states in Iowa and a handful of places where the biggest plants were in the John Deere strike. And instead, we have to put up with Jen Psaki, his press aide, saying he's going to be neutral. Like there were 10,000 workers who I would argue are the exact demographic that we have to use to pull back from Trump-like forces in this country. And boy, did Biden and the administration blow the John Deere moment. So we can't afford more of that. We need national unions to be way bolder. And we know that that ain't going to happen unless workers do what the workers at John Deere did, which is have a rank and file revolt and force a different outcome from their national unions. That's what we need. Gen General McAlevey with the marching orders. There we go. <laughs> Oh, by the way, Jane, where's your piece going to be published? Oh, in the nation. Thanks. Oh, in the nation. Okay. So it's viewers? in the print. Uh, yeah, it's actually a long and analytical piece. It'll be in the print issue in a week or something. And okay, then it'll be right. posted online. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Great to see you too. Right. Keep up the good work. Thank, Thank you. Jane. I'm looking forward to that piece. <laughs> yes, me as well. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot to say there. I mean, one thing I just want to go back to, I think I was glad you pointed out about, you know, when we think about the great resignation and, you know, I think we have to realize, again, it, a lot of this is still individualized, um, whether you want to call it resistance or, or whatever. And it's like, yeah, of course, like we all love seeing videos of someone quitting and like saying F you to their boss. But 
we should not confuse that with that's a very different thing than an actual collective struggle and like mm-hmm. honestly even before covid and before all what's happening now you know that every day there are workers doing that right and that's mm-hmm. that is like you know we've all been there yeah and that's you know it, under capitalism it's like okay it, that's maybe your one option you have is like let me just quit and go somewhere else um mm-hmm. you know but that's a very <clears throat> a very different thing than than organizing you know um so and that's why i kind of got I've been a little annoyed when I've heard some people call the great resignation, like a low key general strike um, because yeah, just no, <laughs> just no, you know, and again, yeah, it's yeah. not like to, it, there is something significant going on again. We're oh, seeing yeah. this happen. Oh yeah. You should quit. If you want to quit, definitely. Yeah. Quit and right like, now. <laughs> we're seeing it in numbers that show like there is something significant, but again, mm-hmm. it, that does not, I don't think inherently mean uh, like militancy per se, or does not necessarily inherently mean, enhanced ability to organize you know right. it's it's a very different thing and i think right. you know we we should keep that in mind and, and you know it is uh it and like you said the the process of, of organizing is so um you know especially in this country you know this it stacks so far um you know against you but you quitting you know is not necessarily uh something that you're going to you know hit barriers on yeah, I want to just add two things about the so-called great resignation, which, you know, again, like I'm totally a fan of. Um, but the first thing is um, I, I I don't actually think that we have enough data or enough information about the great resignation yet to like make grand proclamations about what it does and does not mean. Um, because I do think that there is some evidence or I've seen some evidence that, yes, people are quitting their jobs, especially at the, um, you know, lower rungs of the economy. So like service sector jobs, uh, what what we call bad jobs, basically. Um, But there's also evidence that it's not that these people are just quitting these jobs, and then nobody's going back into the labor force. It's more like a churn, I guess, or like, it's like people are quitting, like, a shitty fast food job. uh, And then because the labor market's tight, they're able to find a different, you know, job still on the lower wage end of the market, but that is offering like a little bit more. Um, And, you know, again, that's still like a great thing. Like, it's great that the labor market is tight and that uh, employers are now actually being forced to uh, offer higher wages in some cases or better benefits or, you know, like whatever, like even just in my neighborhood, like I go around and every fast food place has like a help wanted sign in the window. And like, I don't remember that I've ever seen that before, you know, like I know that like fast food places are always hiring, but like now they're like really desperate, you know, like they're like, please like come work for Pizza Hut or whatever. Um, So the point is just that, you know, we Again, I don't think that there's enough information as of yet to like really say what's going on with the Great Resignation. Um, and then the other thing, um, the other thing about the Great Resignation, um, as as it relates to you know collective action and unionizing, is uh, when a workplace has a lot of high turnover and like when people don't stay in the job for that long, that actually makes it harder to unionize, right? And that is like. Definitely not to say that like, oh, if you're a McDonald's worker, like you have to keep working at your shitty job in order to unionize. Like that is obviously not what I'm saying at all. Um, But that's just another way in which like these things are difficult, right? Like jobs are shitty and then people quit them. And because of that high turnover, um, it like it makes it that much harder to you know, unionize people to actually make the job less shitty. So I don't have an answer for that. That's just like my two cents. Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering. I mean, and and many of these, High, bigger high profile strikes we're seeing, whether it's um, John Deere, Kellogg's, um, possibly the almost IATSE one, you know, these are actually in places where 
most of the striking workers are people that have been there a long time, you know? Um, and again, I think that it creates a certain stability to be able to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And also like the union structure that's there and like having longtime workplace leaders is important. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah, I just, oh. I just, share, I just share your, your hesitations. I mean, like as somebody who has like quit many jobs in the past, like I'm all, like, like I said, I'm all for the great resignation. Um, and I think that it is interesting and significant that for whatever reason, you know, large masses of people seem to be doing it all at once. Um, you know, I, I think again, like, I think that, Um, Even if it's not collective action, obviously, it has had some effect on the labor market, right? Um, And that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, But yes, at the end of the day, Paul, I'm with you. I don't think it's a general strike. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and again, it's not at all an attack on if anyone's made this kind of video, but there is something kind of neoliberal about, like, I'm going to make a video of myself quitting as an individual, and then like, call that, like, I don't know, call that Mm -hmm. resistance or organizing, you know, um, Right. That, that is kind of, there is kind of a, a neoliberal logic there. Yeah. Um, you know, a, another thing I want to pick up on from what, you know, Jane was talking about was, you know, around the importance of picket lines. And I think like the public display of working class solidarity. And, you know, one of my favorite parts from the Bernie campaign, if people will remember, I know it feels like 10 million years ago, but, um, you know, he would text supporters about picket lines in their mm-hmm. area, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that and, and try to mobilize people. And honestly, I mean, I think this is something that current left electeds, people in office or people running for office should kind of pick up on. I think especially now that we are seeing a little bit more strikes for people to get involved with, um, because I know I say I say it repeatedly on the show, but like we're in this weird moment where so much of the left and really just people in general are pro-union without having direct experience with unions. But mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that want to support in certain ways. Um, and we, we should try to mobilize that energy, you know, this, this, you know, movement that's grown since Bernie, um, you know, we should try to mobilize that as much as possible for these strikes. And again, it really does make a a material, um, difference. You know, we've mobilized it in Pennsylvania. There's a, one of the Kellogg's plant plants Mm. is, um, outside Philadelphia. We've gone up a bunch of times, um, you know, on Saturday, we raised a few dollars for their strike fund. Um, you know, that really does help morale um and kind of help them stick it out for a little bit longer mm-hmm. um i i'm still getting texts from bernie uh maybe not about local picket lines um i don't think that there are any happening in albuquerque right now but like he definitely texted me to throw down for john deere strike fund so right yeah yeah right <laughs> yeah so, yeah, so he's think, still at it <laughs> seriously we need more people and like you know more mm-hmm. i think local level elected officials mm-hmm. doing it to their constituents who might not be on the bernie text chain um you know <laughs> right right yeah yeah no i mean jane's point about uh biden just like not showing up in iowa um i think uh, yeah is is really disappointing and even if that kind of thing is only symbolic um i i do think that he should be doing that yeah i mean and it's like they're again going back lancaster pennsylvania one of the kellogg's uh plants that's on strike and I've been up there twice and I'm definitely not saying every person there was a Trump supporter, but I knew some of them were based on mm. when they picket duty was over and they drove away. There was Trump stickers. And it's just like, you know, imagine the impact of Biden coming there personally, showing a strong support. I'm not saying that would necessarily change them overnight, but it would kind of, if you're a Trump supporter, it would make you maybe think twice, uh, you know, it just, right. I don't know, get the wheels turning totally. in your totally. head. And, 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 I think, and- 
Absolutely. And that yeah. would definitely, like, I think, go a long way in combating this idea that, again, you know, these dem the Democratic elite is just completely out of touch with the uh, actual lives and uh, struggles faced by workers, like, no matter, like, what kind of, like, good game they talk, you know? Right. So, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> on that note, um, Paul, any, any last, any last labor thoughts? You're labor, Paul. And, right. and we yeah. haven't, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we haven't been pumping you for advice as much as we should have been, but, um, yeah. What, are, yeah. What do you think we should be looking at for 2022? Yeah. You know, um, it's a good question. I'm not prepared for, it. but you know, actually I think, um, there was a great article I, I, written in labor notes, um, a great, you know, labor magazine and, and network. Um, I think it was called Swarming Solidarity. And it was written at the beginning of 2021 that kind of outlined all the contract expirations coming up that we should focus on on ways to get involved. Um, and, you know, I think someone should write that article again. And, you know, I think really try to mobilize around that. You know, we in in, in Philadelphia, you know, we worked in DSA to actually, um, you know, create a whole system of, signing people up to support the different strikes in different months. Um, you know, so I think we should be looking towards that. Um, I know I've said on this show, it's not 2022, but 2023 UPS contract expiration. Again, we have this new leadership in the Teamsters that seems to be, you know, more dynamic, more willing to fight. So I think that can be a real flashpoint. Um, but yeah, and I think more in terms of the slow, in terms of the slow burner stuff, I think, you know, really getting serious about, again, at the state level, having conversations with unions about, um, you know, what do you want to call it? Green New Deal or whatever you want to call it. As Adolf Reed always says, you can call it Teddy Pendergrass if you want. It doesn't really <laughs> yeah. matter. Um, I but, think that would go over well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Teddy Pendergrass New Deal. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, getting serious about, you know, ha reaching out to unions, putting together plans and, and um, you know, it won't happen overnight. Like the experience in New York, you know, first they got together and released like a vision document and like that might sound very like stupid or whatever. But what I think is important about that is that I think that's the process of getting the buy in. So like, we haven't done anything yet, but now the unions can feel like we actually crafted this policy. You know, we have ownership over it and now we have something clear that we want to fight for. Um, so, again, I think like if, if there are at the state level, local level, if that's not happening, people should start trying to make that happen. Um, and I do see an opening because again, a lot, you know, these union leaders are not idiots. Like many of them, A, understand that climate change is real and B, they understand like a change is coming, even if they don't like it, a change is coming. So mm -hmm. I think there's an opening to say like, look, let's get out in front of this. Let's be proactive to do something in a way that's not going to hurt unions. And I think more and more people are, are, are open to that. Um, and, you know, I, maybe finally I'll say, you know, you brought it up in your segment and then Jane mentioned it, but, you know, I think a lot of people have heard about the, of course, the tornado in, um, Kentucky and I think six Amazon warehouse workers died. They had a no phone policy, you know, we're not even allowed to see if there were weather alerts. Um, but this is just one more example to highlight how important worker health and safety is. I mean, it's always been important, but now it's highlighted even more. And again, there's really just no substitute for a strong union. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, OSHA, of course, is important. We need more funded OSHA, but it's like, realistically, they can't be everywhere. Um, right. And it's like a bureaucratic process. Um, 
you know, most unions have health and safety written into the contract. Again, whether it's enforced or not is another thing that varies by union, but that that is the solution to these mm-hmm. problems is strong unions. Um, and so more and more, you know, I was just at a labor training on Saturday in Philadelphia and, you know, uh, one of the most well-attended sessions was, you know, organizing around health and safety in mm, the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it was their UPS worker, a teacher, sanitation workers, um, they were all experiencing the same issue. Um, so, you know, just something to keep in mind, like that's, the labor movement is not just about dollars and cents. Like it's really right. about, you know, workers as human beings. And I think health and safety is like the best example of what, what capitalism does to workers um, and, you know, what our response needs to be. I want to underscore that uh, just because when I was kind of like looking into the whole Tyson debacle and doing research for that part of my segment, um, I came across something interesting, which is that one Tyson plant in Waterloo, Iowa, which, you know, became a site of like massive outbreaks. And I think this was the plant where the managers were like taking a betting pool on how many workers would get sick. Um, Those workers had a union Um, and it's a very interesting story. And I like, don't really want to get into it here. I mean, I feel like it could be its own episode or maybe labor Paul can take this like at some point, but the late, but the union um, was for whatever reason, completely disconnected from the rank and file and basically did nothing to help uh, help members. I mean, I, th- I think maybe, you know, they like did some kind of light agitating to get like more masks or whatever, but um, it, it was just like a real shame. And uh, I think at one point the, like that uh, branch leadership, like even spoke out on behalf of management at Tyson. Mm. So it was just like, I don't know, it was yeah. just like such a mess. And like, that's all to say, I'm not saying that like, you know, um, that was UFCW and I'm obviously like, that's a huge union. And I'm not saying that like the whole union is bad or whatever. And like, who knows what was even going on with this one local. Right. But that's all to say that, and this is something that Jane brought up multiple times. Like it's not, uh, it's not just enough to have a union. I mean, I have always said that any union is better than no union probably. Um, but what we really need are strong fighting unions, you know, and obviously like that's much easier said than done. But I, I just think that it bears repeating. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, these reform movements inside unions are so important. So, I mean, the team surge was a product of that, you know, mm-hmm. this new leadership, they are trying to make it a more fighting union, but also uh, Jane briefly mentioned the UAW. So United Auto Workers. And for those that don't know, long story short, for a very long time, in the UAW, you elected leadership essentially through a delegate system. That's kind of like our electoral college. And we know how great our electoral college is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so actually, you know, rank and file members voted to get basically just back to one person, one vote. And, you know, that's that's a huge reform that I think could pay dividends um, in the future. Um, but you're right. Yeah, it's not just enough to have a union. And even, you know, going back to OSHA. And of course, mm. I got to talk about Tony Mazaki again. <laughs> Um, But, you know, he always said he actually pioneered the movement for OSHA. And once it was passed, he was like, look, it's cool. But like at the end of the day, like if our unions are not organized in the shop to enforce health and safety, it's basically meaningless. Like OSHA provides some cover on the law that we can use. But if you don't have committees in the union on health and safety that actually are enforcing this stuff, it, it could be essentially meaningless. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, well, okay. So we mentioned a lot of different articles and books over the course of this episode. Uh, obviously, everybody should go out and read those immediately. I am very much looking forward to Jane's piece, which is coming out. Um, I want to I wanna re-recommend her article on the Bessemer, Alabama uh, Union Drive. Um, like I said, it's 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 a hard read, you know, it's like pretty sobering. Um, I think that she takes a really unflinching look at what happened. Um, and I think that it's really important to uh, think about, think about uh, strategy and think about, you know, everything that she lays out and I don't know what we're going to do in 2022. So on that note, um, thank you everybody for watching. Um, I had a great time talking to Jane and we'll see you next week. Good night. Good night.